have, have wished for, well, even some good things. You know, we wish for good health. You know, that can become a, a constant thing that's before us. Like, I really want just better health. Because if I, if I had better health, I would have, you know, better days. I could serve the Lord. And, and so the wishes aren't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, we're going to study a story here this morning of a, of a man who was paralyzed. And, and he was going before Jesus with a huge wish that he could walk again. Well, that's not a bad thing. And so as we think through that, in our study here, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark this morning, we're going to visit probably a story that's very familiar to most of us in the room, the healing of the paralyzed man. And we're going to see these four men who are determined to get their friend to Jesus. And, and of course, all of these men probably thought that the man's greatest need and the greatest want for this man was his physical healing. But imagine then when you're finally before Jesus and you meet this healer who can heal. You've heard about it. It's been going across the countryside that this man can heal. And the first thing he says to you isn't you're healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. Talk about a savior. Talk about a Messiah who is always catching people off guard. We, we have the benefit of knowing why Jesus came. We, we know his mission. We know his life. But try to put your shoes in the man, in, in the, put yourself in the shoes of that paralyzed man. We don't know if he hadn't been able to walk his entire life. We don't know if he had just been paralyzed from an injury or an accident. But clearly this man came before Jesus with a huge wish that he could walk again. And then the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, your sins are forgiven. Question, how would you and I respond to that? What was Jesus really trying to teach? I think what we're going to learn today in our study is, is that Jesus knows something that man doesn't know. You see, he knows, Jesus knows, that man has a much bigger problem than just his physical, temporary condition. What Jesus, I think, is saying to him is, I understand your problems. I've seen your suffering, and I'm going to get to that. But please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering. It's his sin. And that's what we see here in this story today. And so the title of this message today is simply, Jesus Sees Our Greatest Need. And he confronts that need. He deals with that need because he knows that's the greatest thing in our life that we need dealing with. Our greatest need was his first priority. And so the way we're going to do this, we're going to read the passage of Scripture. And then there's just some narratives that are best worked through by looking at the different characters in the story. And so we're going to look at four groups here in the story today. Number one, we're going to see the crowd who was packed into this home here in a moment. Then we're going to see the friends who brought their friend to Jesus. Then we're going to look at the Savior and how he responded. And then finally, we're going to look at the critics and how they respond. So I left blanks today, a, a total blank page that you can just write because it's probably a lot to write if you're a note taker. So you can write down those four, the crowd, the friends, the Savior, and the critics. Let's pray, and we'll read this passage of Scripture. Heavenly Father, thank you for what we're going to study today and be reminded of. And Lord, I pray that today your Spirit would speak to us. May we have ears to hear. May we have eyes to see. And may we have hearts that are willing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the story. 
And again, he entered into Capernaum. This is Jesus. He had been outside the city because of the news that was traveling about because of him. If you look back up at verse 45, uh, the news was blazing abroad insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city. So for a while, because of the chaos of the healing of the leper, he had to stay outside the city. But he finally figured that it had cooled off a little bit, so he goes back into the city where he really made his home base at, Capernaum, as we mentioned. It says he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. Well, which house is Mark referring to? He's referring, I believe, back up to the house mentioned in verse 29 of chapter 1, the house of Simon and Andrew. So, so Jesus goes back into the house of Simon and Andrew, but word travels very quick that he's back in the city. And look what happens, verse 2. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. So news travels quickly that Jesus is back in town. He's at the house where one miracle had already occurred. Of course, if you remember, he healed uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law of her fever, of her sickness. He's already healed a leper. And so word has traveled that this is a great miracle worker. This is a great healer. People don't know who this Jesus is yet. All, all they know is that uh, he, is, he is doing incredible things in people's lives. And so people invite themselves over to, their, to, to the house. <laughs> and it, now, now in that culture, it wasn't a big deal, you know, for people to invite themselves over. In fact, that was an honor to invite yourself over to someone's house. How many of you agree, though, in our culture, that's not going to work today? Like if I just invited myself over to Russ Gordon's house. Russ, I mean, you might like that, but if I brought the whole city with me, that might be a problem for us. I'm just going to guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, whoa there, Pastor. That's a little too much. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know if, um, you know, Simon Peter's mother-in-law was now well. I don't know if she was like a neat freak or, um, you know, was, was someone who couldn't handle that. But just imagine the whole city at one house. It is packed. It is packed. And so what does Jesus do there? Now, we're about to look at the crowd here in a moment. We're going to talk about why they were there, but notice why he's there. It says at the end of verse 2, he preached the word unto them. He preached the word unto them. Verse 3, and they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy, a man paralyzed, which was born of four. So four of these man's friends bring this paralyzed man to Jesus in another uh, a gospel account of this story, it says they bring him on a stretcher, each one carrying a corner. Verse 4, and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, that's talking about the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, so they couldn't get in the door, they couldn't get in a window, they couldn't get in a back door, so they go up to the roof and they break up the roof. Somebody wants to do that to your house. How would you respond? All right. They let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone, God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were so reasoned, um, within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? What is easier, to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk? 
but that ye may know that the Son of Man. Now, this is the first time this phrase is used here in the book of Mark, the Son of Man. And it's only used one other time here in this chapter, I believe over in verse 28 of chapter 2 that we'll get to in a few weeks. But outside of that, that phrase isn't used again in the book of Mark until Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this phrase, Son of Man, is used 12 times in the Gospel of Mark and two of those here in this chapter. But right here, Jesus says the Son of Man. And this was, an, this was a specific messianic title. He was quoting or alluding to Daniel chapter number 7 where Daniel has the vision of the Ancient of Days. By the way, I have no idea what that looked like, but it had to be incredible. Just like John had a similar vision on the Isle of Patmos, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet as dead, the Son of Man. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. Remember, one of the things of Mark, as he's telling you the life of Jesus, is he's telling you about the authority of this king, the power of this king, the kingdom that he's bringing into bear into being that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins he says to the sick of the palsy i say unto thee arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house and immediately the paralyzed man arose took up the bed went forth before them all insomuch that they were all amazed again remember what what does mark do in in his gospel he he shows you the reactions of the different people to jesus so they were amazed and they glorified god saying i love this we've never saw it on this fashion they were bewildered they were smacked upside the head with amazement and so this is our story we're going to look at today let's look at the first truth and that is number one the crowd we see here the crowd in verses one and two um the crowd. What was the crowd looking for that day? I've already kind of alluded to it in my introduction. What was the crowd looking for that day? Why had the crowd come to that house? Why had they assembled? Maybe I should ask you a similar question. Why are you here today? Why have you and I assembled here today? Do you realize that there are people today right now who are in buildings that we call churches, and they are there to see a spectacle, to see something amazing, but it's really not, they're, there, they're not there to hear the word preached unto them. They're there for whatever the feeling of the moment might be, or maybe it's because, oh, word traveled fast, you know, word traveled fast that there was this miracle worker. And, and of course, they don't know all the details, but, but you can imagine, and this is something that Jesus was very careful of. In fact, he, he had tried to stop this from happening in our study last week when he healed the leper. We told you how he kind of throws a curveball and he says, okay, make sure you don't tell anybody. Why did Jesus not want the leper to tell anybody? Because he knew that people would start following him for the wrong reasons. And you might say, well, even if they're following him for the wrong reasons, they'll be able to still hear the word, and that's true. But Jesus knows the heart of man. And he knows that so many times people want to see a spectacle, but they don't want to hear the truth of the word. And that's an important thing to keep in our focus as we walk in this Christian life together is why do we assemble? Why do we gather? Why is the crowd build? See, the crowd in the city of Capernaum didn't wait for an invitation to come over to the house of Peter and Andrew. Um, 
And so, the, and so the challenge is this, why do we follow Jesus? Is it because of what he might be able to do for us in the moment? Or is it for what he has done for us for eternity? And so with the crowd, I think we just see this lesson put before us here that we have to ask ourselves, why do we follow Jesus? Is it because of what he might be able to do for us in the moment? Or is it for what he has done for us for eternity? And this isn't the last time we're going to see the crowd in the story and life of Jesus, but it's an important thing to keep before us as we go forward. So that's the crowd. And the crowd challenges us with that question. And I hope that you'll take that to heart as we ponder the truths of this story as we unpack them. Then we see also the friends here in this story. So we've seen the crowd. We see that they're there. We don't really know what reasons they're there for, but regardless, he's going to preach the word unto them. And I'm so thankful that was the primary mission of Jesus, to proclaim good news to the captives, to proclaim liberty to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And, and uh, there's a beautiful passage in Luke chapter 4 when he's in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth that he says that. That was his purpose. And so we see him pursuing and living out that purpose. But number two, we see the friends. Look at verses 3 and 4. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So four friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. You know, as you think about these four friends, they really cared about their friend. How many of you have friends that you care about? Raise your hand if you've got friends you care about. Yeah, 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 yeah. We all have friends that we care about. Do you have friends that you really care about, though? Like the kind of friends that you would, um, if they called you at 3 a.m., you would be up out of your bed in the lick of a minute and you'd be over there helping them? Anybody have friends like that? Of course, of course. You, do you all have friends that you would, you know, give a lift to Birmingham or Huntsville in your car? Of course, of course. They didn't have a car. They didn't have any of that. They had to carry their friend on a stretcher. Now, um, we don't know how far it was. I'm guessing it was somewhere in the city. But let's just hope and pray that this paralyzed man was, um, uh, 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 he had a proper diet, you know, he wasn't too heavy, <laughs> they could carry him easily. But, but think about the love that these four men had for their paralyzed friend. They were willing to carry him, who knows how far, and then when they get there, it wasn't going to be easy to get in to see Jesus. And oh yeah, by the way, this goes back to the crowd. You would think that the crowd who's there would see these four men, you know, carrying their friend to see Jesus. And you think they would have made room and parted the crowd so that they could get in the door. But it says here the crowd wasn't having any of that. How many of you have ever been a part of a crowd where they ain't so gracious? You know, it's all pushing, you know, like on Black Friday, you're all trying to get through the same door. You're running people over. Yeah, they weren't too gracious. You would think that, that this crowd, if they had saw their, these friends bringing their friend to Jesus, they would have parted ways to let them in, but they didn't. And so it wasn't easy for these friends. I mean, they had already come so far. They could have easily said, well, I guess we can't see Jesus today, so we're going to carry you back home. But that's not what they did. They sought means. Over in uh, the book of Luke, in the, in the parallel passage of this story, Luke says they sought means to bring, Je to, to bring their friend to Jesus. These friends, they're, they're amazing. As you study them, see why these friends were successful for just a moment. Number one, these friends believed. They had faith. It says when Jesus saw their faith in verse 5, 
What did these friends believe? They believed on some level that the power of the Lord was present in this, in this home. They heard about this miracle worker. They wanted to get their friend to Jesus. And they believed that this miracle worker could do something that they could not. Oh boy, did, did they ha- not have any clue what he could really do for their friend. But, but they knew that Jesus could do something that they couldn't. They believed in each other and maintained unity. Think about it. All four friends had to be in agreement if they're going to walk the same direction, carrying the same stretcher to see Jesus. You know, we have a lot of Christians today that debate on how to carry the stretcher. You know what? Just carry the stretcher. Get people to Jesus. You know, we, we, we have a lot of people who, who say, well, we've never torn a hole in the roof before. That's all right. Just get people to Jesus. As long as it's not breaking uh, God's clear commands in Scripture, okay? As long as it's not sin, get people to Jesus. They believed. These friends believed. Um, they believed that they, they, and here's what's neat. I think, I think on some level they believed that what they could do could make a difference. Now, they couldn't heal their friend, but they knew they could at least get their friend to Jesus. And so they believed. Number two, they labored in that belief. They labored. They they carried their friend who knows how far. And as I mentioned to you over in the Luke passage in verse 18, it, it says that they sought means to bring them because the first way didn't work. How many of us, when we try to get a friend to Jesus, we try method one and it doesn't work. And so we don't try any others. Oh, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, may we be motivated today by the four examples of these men who way one was blocked. Maybe way two was blocked, but bless God, we're going to start a roof-opening ministry, and we're going to get our friend to Jesus. They worked. They labored. And, what that, and, and that's an important reminder to us that the evidence of our faith is in, our, is, is in the fact that we are laboring. We don't labor to get anything from God, but we work because he's done the finished work in our life. And so it's an overflow of what he's done. And so faith isn't afraid of work. It just knows why it's working. It's not working to earn something from God. It's working because we know we already have a relationship with God and we want others to have that relationship. And these men knew, these men had faith and that faith was evidenced through their labor. And so the challenge to us is the question is, do people see our faith in the way that we serve others? We serve God when we serve others. And so they believed, they worked. And then, as I've already alluded to, they did it a different way. They tried something different. They did it different. Why did they do it a different way? Because the current way wasn't going to get the job done. They couldn't go through the front door. And the reality is, folks, we've got a wonderful work to do for our Savior this is a soul work, and we dare not settle for mediocrity in our, in our efforts. They could have easily packed it up and, and called it a day and went back home. But no, they didn't. Something in them said, we will not be denied in getting our friend to Jesus. And they weren't. Um, as you think about how they did this, they, they had to have a good idea of where Jesus was standing in the house And so they got up there, they got to about the spot where they thought he was standing teaching, and they started to tear open the roof. Now, now these roofs were made of straw, mud, those kinds of things. And and if you can imagine, as Jesus is teaching, all of a sudden, little globs of dirt start falling maybe on top of his head. And everybody's like, what is going on? We don't know what kind of commotion that called, but I'm sure that some people were like, would you please stop interrupting Jesus? Um, 
I'm sure that there were some people who didn't like the fact that they were doing something a different way. But does the mission matter? If so, then sometimes we have to employ different methods in order to see the mission fulfilled. And so they did it a different way. I'm sure that some didn't understand what those crazy people were doing on the roof. Some were probably even critical of their method. Um, probably some said, well, this has never been done before this way, but I'm sure the Pharisees were probably even a part of that crowd. But the reality is they were able to get their friend to Jesus because they believed, they worked, and they tried something different. And so what do we need today in the church? We need stretcher bearers. We need people who are willing to carry a stretcher, men and women, with the kind of faith that will go out and bring those needing to encounter Jesus to hear the gospel. You see, many today are paralyzed by all sorts of things. They're paralyzed by their sin. Sin is paralyzing and crippling and enslaving. And you know what? If we don't bring them to Jesus, if we don't show them Jesus, who is? There's a lot of people paralyzed by their sin today. Number two, people are paralyzed by indifference. That's really what, what the tone of our culture is today. Whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, indifferent. Indifferent about life. Indifferent about where they're going. Indifferent about, indifferent about why they're living. And so you see people paralyzed by sin, paralyzed by indifference, and then paralyzed by prejudice. That is huge today. Our culture purposely tries to chop us up into different classes of people and, and to throw bombs at one another. And so people are paralyzed by this. We see even the Pharisees were paralyzed by that. They were paralyzed by prejudice against Gentiles and against outsiders. The reality is a great many people are not coming to a church where the gospel is proclaimed unless we take a corner of the stretcher and bring them in. Unless we take a corner of the stretcher and bring them in. So are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be a stretcher bearer for these friends? They really give us a great lesson here and reminder that the reason that they were able to get their friend to Jesus is because they believed, they worked, and they did it a different way. See, sometimes to make a difference, you have to do something different. And that's what we see these friends teaching us. So we see the friends, we see the crowd, and then we see the Savior here in this story. And we see how he responds, which is just incredible. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, rise and walk. That's not what he said at first, is it? He says, your sins be forgiven. Why did Jesus respond that way? Well, Jesus knows something perhaps the man doesn't know. This man has a bigger problem than his physical condition, right? As I asked you earlier, what do you think that this man's biggest, deepest wish was in seeing Jesus that day? To walk again. I don't know what it's like to be paralyzed, but perhaps you have been temporarily or you know those who are paralyzed I think, of course, at the forefront of this man's thinking, as he lay on that stretcher that day, as his friends were carrying him every step of the way, 
And then he finally gets in front of Jesus after difficulty even getting in front of him. His biggest hope and his biggest wish was to walk again. Now that wasn't a bad thing. How many of you agree? Walking again is not a bad thing. Let me ask you about some of your wishes. You know, I like going to Disney World where wishes come true. How many of you like going to Disney World where wishes come true? Yeah, yeah. You know what, though? A lot of times wishes can be misplaced, but, but this wish that this man had wasn't a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if he's thinking the following. If I can just walk again, if I can just get my biggest wish, then everything else will be okay. What wishes do you have in your life right now? Now, again, they might not be bad things. I just wish to be financially secure. Financially um, independent is the words that get thrown out. I don't think that it's a bad thing that you want to provide for your family, provide for your children's children, and, and you want to be wise, a wise steward of what God has entrusted to you. That's not a bad thing. But do you see how the love of money the root of, is the root of evil and how that can become a bad thing when you think, if I can just become financially secure, then everything else will be okay. If I could just get my health back, then everything else would be okay. If I could just have that relationship status, then everything else would be okay. If I could just get that one person to like me, to love me, then everything else would be okay. What you're saying when you say something like that, if I could just get there, if I could just have that, if I could just become this, what we're saying when we say that and we say that everything else would be okay, what we're literally saying is we're looking to that thing or that person or that status to save us from destruction, disillusionment, mediocrity, what we're really saying is we want that thing to be our savior. Oh, we would never use those words. We would never say that that wish, that hope, that dream is our savior, but it functionally is. And if you never quite get that wish, you know what happens? You become angrier, you're unhappy, you feel empty, you don't feel fulfilled in life. And so many of us, we get caught into the trap of wishing for the next decade, wishing for the next year, wishing for the next, uh, 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 the next promotion at work, wishing for the next million dollars. You know, they asked John D. Rockefeller, what are you going to do now that you made another million? I'm going to make another. And so it never stopped. It became the reason that they lived. And I'm sure that this man, in his condition, was like, if I could just walk again, everything else would be okay. I don't know if he thought that. But you have to imagine he was struggling with that thought. I'm about to meet the guy who they say can heal me. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Um, time out, Jesus. <laughs> you seen me? <laughs> I'm on a stretcher. What Jesus means when he says, son, your sins are forgiven is, he says, if, you see, if you have me, 
I will actually fulfill you. And even if you fail me again, I've provided eternal forgiveness in what I have done for you and what I'm going to do for you on the cross. You see, many scholars say that even right here in this story, early in the book of Mark, the shadow of the cross is already falling across the life of Jesus when he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Already, Jesus knows by saying that statement, he's put himself in the crosshairs of the religious leaders who are standing there that day. But Jesus wasn't going to let the fear of what the critics say, and we're going to get to them in a moment. He wasn't going to let the fear of the religious leaders there in that room keep him from addressing the man's greatest need. And that was forgiveness. That was new life in him. And so what happens is, is for so many people in their life, they first start going to God. They get serious about church because they have problems. <laughs> and so when, when we have problems in our life, we get serious about spiritual things for a while. You know, we get in church and, and we're like, okay, God, I'm going to go to church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful for a while. I, I might even give a little bit in the offering plate. And what we're really saying when we go to God, only when we got problems is we're saying, okay, God, give me a little boost over the hump so that I can get back to saving myself. Back to pursuing my deepest wish. The problem is, is what we're doing is we're looking to something other than Jesus as our Savior. Almost always when we first go to Jesus saying, this is my deepest wish, he's going to say something else. He's going to say, uh-uh, time to go deeper. And that's what Jesus did here. Really what Jesus was doing in his response was he was trying to show this man that there was something far deeper he was after. And the reality for so many in Christianity today is we're okay with God on the surface of our life. But the moment he threatens to go deeper, we're like, whoa. You know why that is? Because the reality is we have idols and functional saviors in our life that we don't, got, we don't want God messing with. But Jesus was going to go deeper with this man. I'm so thankful that I have a Savior who was willing to go deeper with this man. Even in the midst of, he knew that the moment he said, your sins are forgiven, he knew that was going to put him in the crosshairs of the, of the religious leaders. And so Jesus goes deeper than just a physical, momentary want, maybe even a need. We wouldn't argue that for this guy to walk again to us would say, that's a need. But what Jesus does here in his response is he addresses the man's greatest need. Why? We know here in a second Jesus is going to do an incredible miracle. This guy is going to walk again. But here's the reality of what Jesus was saying. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessings and the most lasting results. And so for us, the challenge is as we minister to people, as we reach out to people, let's remember what their greatest need is. These four friends that brought their friend to Jesus thought his greatest want, his greatest wish, even his greatest need, was for him to walk again. What they didn't realize is there was something much deeper that Jesus was going to address. Why? Because forgiveness is the greatest miracle. And so we see the crowd. We see the friends. We see Jesus's response. And then, of course, we see the critics. The critics. 
verses 6 through 9, it says, But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Right question. The answer should have been obvious, right? Only God. So that must mean Jesus is, there you go, yeah, he's God. Verses 8 and 9. And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned so within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether, what is easier? Whether is, is it easier? Is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? So Jesus can read the motives of the hearts of those around him. And in this case, it was the religious leaders. And when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your son, your sins are forgiven, they become shocked and angry in their hearts. They believe that Jesus is blaspheming and and showing contempt and irreverence towards God because he claims to do something that only God can do. They think to themselves, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right in the question. And so let's let's give an illustration of this for a moment. Let's say there's three guys named Tom, Bob, and Joe. Tom, Bob, and Joe. In fact, I need three guys who would be willing to uh, help me with this. That that might be easier for you to keep the story straight. Russ, Herman, and Umberto. Y'all come on up here for a second. We're going to change their names just for a second. Russ is going to be Tom, Herman's going to be Bob, and Joe is going to be Umberto. So I'm going to talk through this, guys, and y'all act it out, but not like really, okay? We don't want anybody getting hurt, okay? Let's say Tom, raise your hand if you're Tom. Let's say Bob, raise your hand if you're Bob. And let's say Joe, raise your hand, Joe, are talking. Tom, Bob, and Joe, they're talking. And all of a sudden, Tom punches Bob smack in the mouth. I mean, really punches him, smack in the mouth. There's blood everywhere. So Tom and Bob are like in it. I mean, for some reason, Bob has like hauled off, or Tom has hauled off and popped Bob in the mouth. And all of a sudden, after that, okay, <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, Joe goes up to Tom, who's been punched in the, in the or no, Joe, Joe goes up to Tom, who's punched Bob in the mouth. So Joe, go over to Tom who's punched Bob in the mouth. And Joe says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Bob in the mouth. I forgive you for punching Bob in the mouth. It's all right. It's over. What is Bob, who's been punched in the mouth, going to say once he's calmed down? He's going to turn to Joe and say, Joe, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive Tom. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. (laughs) So what was Jesus saying when he said, son, your sins are forgiven? Here's what he was saying. When Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says those words, he's actually saying, your sins have really been against me. The only person who can possibly say that to a human being would be their creator and their God. 
Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God Almighty. The religious leaders know this. This man is not just claiming to be a miracle worker. That's who the people were there to see that day. They wanted to see a wonder performed in their eyes, something, a spectacle. But Jesus was claiming in that moment, I am the Lord of the universe. I am the God of all creation. And your sin is against me, and I forgive you. And so, they're furious. They know what Jesus has claimed. And of course, Jesus, in his incredible wisdom, responds to their questioning hearts with a question. On Sunday nights right now, we're, we're in a small group study on cults and other world religions. And we're talking about how we engage with Mormon missionaries who knock on our door, Jehovah Witnesses and others. And one of the principles we're learning is how to ask questions that get them really searching their heart for why they believe what they believe. And that's what Jesus did all the time. He always took someone's questioning, accusative heart, and he came back with a question that's just like, what? He says, what's easier? Is it easier for me to just say your sins are forgiven or to say, arise, take up that bed and walk? What would be the obvious answer? Well, the obvious answer would be it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because we can't really see that happening. Rising and walking for a paralyzed man is something that's clearly tangible. And so in one way, they would say, well, it's easier to say rise and walk than to say your sins are forgiven. But it's really fascinating. If you really dig into this question that Jesus is asking, it has double meaning, what I mean. What's really easier for the Savior of the world to do? It's easier for the Savior of the world to just say rise and walk because that doesn't cost as great of a price as your sins being forgiven. Do you see? Do you see how the question really has two answers depending on your frame of reference? For Jesus, it was easier to say rise and walk because it was going to be difficult to go to the cross and to pay the high price for mankind's sin. And so these critics who are missing the whole point right in front of them, how so many people who are trapped in religion do all the time, they miss it. They miss the very God of the universe standing in front of them. Jesus asks this question and says, whether is it easier to say the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. As I mentioned to you a few moments ago, many biblical scholars say that here, as early as Mark chapter 2, the shadow of the cross falls across Jesus' path. Jesus knows what the religious leaders are thinking, so he knows that if he begins to let on that he's not just a miracle worker, but he's also the Savior of the world, that they're eventually going to kill him. And so, Jesus is placed in this moment, and he deals with both. <laughs> he deals with both. He deals with the man's sin, because that's his greatest need. But then to confirm that he is the Savior, that he is the God of all creation, he speaks to that paralyzed body, 
and he says, rise and walk. And here's the reality. The critics missed it. The critics missed it. You know, it's truly amazing what you can learn when you have a heart that is ready to receive truth. However, if your predisposition is to be critical and skeptical, then, you, then don't be surprised when you don't learn anything or you miss the opportunities that God has that are right in front of you. And you know what? I'm not Jesus. I can't read hearts, but sometimes people don't hide what's in their heart because it's showing all over their face. There's a lot of days, unfortunately, that I stand up and proclaim truth. And you can tell whether people's hearts are receptive or not. You can tell whether they have a predisposition to be critical and skeptical or whether they say, God, regardless of the messenger and his fallacies, it's your word and I want to learn from your word. Is that the kind of heart that you and I have? Oh, may we not be like the critics. May we not fall into that category where we miss the whole point of the miracle, where we miss the message, where we miss the Messiah standing right in front of us. They did. And so many Christians today, I'm afraid if Jesus walked right in the building, they wouldn't even recognize him because they're so steeped in their critical, cynical, skeptical spirits. It's truly amazing what you can learn when you have a heart that is ready to receive truth. And so we finish out the story. Jesus gives healing to this man so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Um, some scholars, as you study this passage out, they ask the question, why did Jesus tell him to take up his bed? Well, you remember last week that I told you that with Jesus and his healings, there's no rehab? Well, guess what? With this week, with Jesus and his healings, there's no relapses either. Amen? There's no rehab and there's no relapse. And I think what Jesus was saying in, in, in that one simple thing is, hey, take the bed because that's proof that you've been healed. And oh, yeah, by the way, you ain't going to need that again. No relapses, no rehab. This is what Jesus does. And praise God that when he saves a soul, there's no rehab and there's no relapse in that either. It's finished. It's done. And so, how did the people respond? They were amazed. That word amazed means a lot more than I think what we realize. In the Greek, it has the idea that they were literally smacked upside the head with bewilderment. They were amazed. And it says that they said, we've never saw it on this fashion. God is still at work today in the hearts and lives of men and women across the world. And it's our prayer that as we continue to preach the word, as we continue to focus on the greatest need of humanity, that God would work in our midst and that we would be able to say as well, we have never seen it on this fashion. God, you're still at work in the world. You're not done yet. You're not done bringing in those to your kingdom. What a response. We've never seen it this way. Yeah, you've never seen it that way because you literally had the creator of the universe standing in your midst. How many people really recognized it? How many people really realized it? Let's pray together.